Here we are. This is Acts 9, verses 20 to 43. In fact, I think I've spoilt it, haven't I? I didn't need to go onto that slide until I got past my introduction. But anyway, I guess we're used to the term salvation history. But I reckon Acts is all about salvation geography as well. I don't know, did you enjoy geography when you were at school? It wasn't, it was a subject I quite liked, particularly when it was, you know, human geography, learning about places and people and all that sort of thing. But when we look at Acts, you know, I think one Bible verse we're all going to know at the end of going through this um, Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember, I won't ask you to repeat it, but it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we have seen now that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now, last week, the focus shifted to um, Syria, uh, Damascus. And... Uh, but also Peter is on the move as well. He's been to Samaria, as we saw a few weeks back as well. And it's interesting, isn't it? No doubt part of God's providence and plan of salvation history that the Saviour, Jesus Christ, was born where he was born. I mean, Palestine was had been part of Rome for some time. They never really sort of assimilated most um, peoples, when they're conquered after a bit of conflict, they were reconciled to Roman rule. Jews never did, and they were a bit of a, a thorn in Rome's side. They weren't militarily ever going to um, worry the Romans, but strategically it was an important place. And, you know, can you remember that television series, What Have the Romans Done for Us, years ago? I mean, they, most other sort of uh, conquered nations, finally assimilated and became, you know, part of the Roman Empire. I think the only thing the Romans stopped at was Scotland, which probably made sense. But, <laughs> and further towards um, Asia. But, you know, I mean, that's as far as it went. Uh, but, and one of the things was, with Roman peace, Pax Romana, of course, it meant Roman roads. It meant, you know, people could move around sort of quite easily. But also, it wasn't just roads. The Romans also cleared the Mediterranean Sea, which was the way of getting around, you know, the civilised world as it was then, or a big chunk of it. And they made sure there were no pirates there. So in a way, as we see Acts, and I talk about geography, you can see how important all of this is, you know, uh, Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's where we are now. But, you know, that's... We're just about, we've moved into Syria, Damascus, and in chapter 10, there's going to be another great big leap, but we'll look at that or um, next week. But as I say, um, we have got various strands going on here. And we're, what we're going to pick up now is um, when, just after Paul um, had that dramatic conversion, remember he's in Damascus, and we also, because this passage is almost split in two, and in a way you think, why do we go back to look at Peter? When the natural flow of this, we'd have Paul in Damascus going back to Jerusalem and then chapter 10 onwards. But we have, you know, 
this chapter, not this chapter, these verses we're looking at here, if you like, split in two. And it seems to be strange, but perhaps we can see why we have got the account of Peter in Lydda and Joppa. So we are looking, as that slide, let's say it's not very artistic, but hopefully it will do the job. Acts 20 to 31, persecutor turned preacher. So last time we looked at Acts, we saw how Saul had that dramatic encounter of the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus. And it was an encounter with a real risen Lord Jesus. It couldn't have been anything else, because to be an apostle, you had to be a witness of the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus. And we know that he was on his way, he'd got permission from the chief priests in Jerusalem to hunt down the disciples of a risen Christ. And yet he leaves Damascus after his conversion, completely changed. Now he's a disciple. He was going to be a disciple taker, and he's going to end up as a disciple maker. Look back at um, verse 1 of this chapter. I'm going to keep my glasses on. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that's as he set out to Damascus. Now we see Paul spending several days with the Lord's disciples and at once, look at verse 20, he begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of good. That's a massive, it's a radical 180 degree turnaround, isn't it? From breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples to there in verse 20, he is preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Take a look at verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem? And when you think about it, it's no great surprise, is it? Say, so just think back to verse 1 I've just read. All of a sudden, this dramatic change Saul is now under the authority of one who was persecuting. Indeed, he calls Jesus Lord in verse 5 of this chapter, chapter 9. And see how the risen Lord uses Paul to preach. Look at verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And again, this is a fulfillment of what um, we read in verse 15 of chapter 9. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. He hasn't quite started with the Gentiles yet, but you can see already he is going to be an instrument that God, the one true God, will use in spreading good news of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And really there's two groups here, aren't they? There are the Jews in Damascus, those who still adhere to Judaism. And you've now and you've also got the group who are disciples of Jesus. They first become called they first are called Christians in Antioch in chapter eleven. Um, 
followers beware, if you like. But they are people who have turned to repentance faith and put their trust in Jesus. So you've got these two groups in Damascus. And you think, how, you know, how are these different go- groups going to react? I mean, would the disciples of the risen Lord Jesus, at this stage, they would have predominantly been Jews, but as I say, they turned in repentance and faith to Christ. Would they accept Saul, who'd been their chief persecutor? You know, he was one, do you remember, who stood watching while Stephen was stoned? And I say, think about the Jews. You know, this was a person who was going to sort out the problem of these uh, converts, you know, these heretics in Jewish eyes. What's their reaction going to be about Paul now? He's done this, you know, complete, you know, turnaround. And I don't know, um, the political system in this country, I don't know if it's similar in other countries, but if you're an MP, you can just switch to a, a different party or stand as independent, and you don't have to have any by-election at all. So people who voted for a member of parliament on a particular mandate, that political party, this individual can decide that I'm going to change sides, I'm going to go to another party, and he doesn't have to face the electorate. And um, the reasons why they do that, maybe it's a matter of principle, maybe it's uh, they can sort of see what's happening, they can sort of uh, check the political sort of movements and think, well, I might be better off somewhere else. But whatever the reason, that, that is the reality in our political system. And it can't help me, you know, you think about it, these people who had helped get the MP elected, these party workers, the people who are on the doorsteps putting, all of a sudden, he's no longer in their party, he belongs to someone else, the people they oppose. And equally, the, the party he's just gone to this guy who'd stood up in Parliament opposed everything they stood for, and yet now he's with them. And, and equally, you know, those party activists, those, his, those other MPs from that new party he belongs to, I wonder what their reaction is going to be. And I'm sure there's an element of this going on. Obviously, this is far more serious. This is about life and death, both spiritually and probably physically as well, whereas, well, I know for some people, politics is almost a matter of life and death. But, you know, you get this the idea, don't you? You know, someone switches from one party to another, and all of a sudden, everything you stood for, seemingly, has changed. Those people who worked so hard to get him elected now see that he stands saying completely different. And equally, those who... um, he opposed previously, all of a sudden, they're now, he's now their MP. So you might get a sort of an idea of what it must have been like both for the Jews and also the converts um, to um, Christ, you know, following the risen Lord. You know, turncoat, traitor, anger. I'm sure all of those things are, you know, the scenario I gave with the MP. And that would be exactly the same hidden here. There'd also be fear. There'd also be, could we trust this person any longer? Have a look at verse 23. You know, there's a conspiracy, isn't there, among the Jews to kill Paul. And do you see what happens next? He has to be smuggled out of Damascus in a basket through an opening the city wall. 
by those who'd previously been persecuting. And it doesn't get any better when Paul makes it to Jerusalem. As he speaks boldly in the name of the Lord in the city, the Hellenistic Jews tried to kill him. Look at that in verse 29. And for his own safety, he's sent back to his birthplace, Tarsus, by the believers. And you know, what Saul experiences here is probably a foretaste of what he's going to encounter on all his missionary journeys. That opposition, those threats for his life, amongst other things. So that is the Jews and their reaction. We see it's murderous. They want to kill him. You know, this is the person who's, you know, had all the credentials of being a Jew. He was a, you know, a teacher, a rabbi. He had studied under Gamaliel. All of these. And here he is turning around and following Christ. So they want to murder him. How about the disciples of Christ, what, what do we reckon they're going to um, fill? What's their experience? What's their sort of um, likely response to Paul? Look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And it's hardly surprising, is it? You know, given his reputation, his past behaviour, you know, an element of um, scepticism, fear is totally understandable. Verse 27, we have Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was a Jew, but he came from Cyprus. He had, uh, we, we encounter him earlier on in Acts. And note the role he plays there in verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas, you know, Barnabas speaks up for Paul. And he tells him of his passion, his love for Christ, say, having preached fearlessly for him in Damascus. And it's telling, isn't it? Once Paul has become a believer, he seeks out fellow believers. He wants to be with those who just recently, literally, sort of days before, he'd been opposed to, had been trying to drag back to Jerusalem. And, you know, we see that right at the very beginning there at, um, in chapter 19 of uh, chapter 9, Saul spent several days with disciples in Damascus. You know, he's, he needs to be with them now because he is a believer like them and he needs to be with those. He wants to share his love for Christ and that shared love for um, his fellow believers. And, you, and that can only come from a transforming work of Christ and his gospel of grace. You know, former enemies now made friends, united in and through Christ. As I say, that's only possible because of Christ and that transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Peckham, southeast London. I used to know it in the mid-70s. Um, 
I suppose it had a reputation being... North Peckham Estate was pretty notorious. If you can remember Damalola Taylor, his murder there. But, I mean, because of where it is, it's only just across the River Thames to the city. So it's become, you know, or ha- gentrified, if you like. Lots of people, professionals, moved in. It's a real sort of melting pot, you know. Um, and the reason I mention it is there is a place called All Saints. Uh, it's the parish church of Peckham. And I think for a long time it was struggling along. It was probably just a few elderly, more than likely um, ladies from the West Indies, might well have been from the original Windrush generation. But um, it was revitalised um, and became a thriving um, parish church. Um, Amy Orr Ewing and Frog Orr Ewing uh, were a couple there. And he was talking, Vicar was talking to, the, uh, to a politician, a local politician. And this is what he said, I'll read it out. You know, I love and hate All Saints Church. I love coming to a place where all the different groups in the community are gathered together. You know, there is nowhere else in Peckham other than the church where you have black and white, African and Caribbean, young and old, middle class and working class coming together. If you go to the pubs, people just drink in separate pubs. If you go to community centre, different mini-communities meet, but not with different or other communities. It's only in the church that they come together. I love that. If only you could stop talking all the time about God and Jesus, I'd come every week. Well, obviously he's missed the point, hasn't he? The only thing which unites all those uh, people is the fact of Christ. And, you know, I mean, and we think that's wonderful, and it is wonderful, it truly is wonderful, that, you know, you think of Saul and how he can turn from being opposed and enemy of those who follow Christ to, as we'll see later on in Acts, the one who spends his whole life um, proclaiming Christ. But, you know, as I say, we think it's wonderful, but actually that's something which we ourselves have to take seriously, and how often... You know, we're told to think of others more highly than ourselves. How often do I do that? It's a good question. You know, you think of the background of churches, both, you know, um, independent evangelical churches and, you know, Anglican churches, splits and all sorts of things, all this rivalry and bitterness take place in what are meant to be these, you know, new communities of, you know, the living God. So, although it is a wonderful thing that we have that unity in Christ, it's also something that it's not just we say, but we actually have to actively do, isn't it? And I think that is a challenge for each one of us, to remember exactly that. We are united in Christ. And they aren't just words. It means we have to act as well. Just as we see these uh, Paul and these new believers, how he joins with them, wants fellowship with them, wants to tell them of Jesus Christ and his love and that love for all the Christians there. And as I say, that's only through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. So secondly, we're going to look at verses 32 to 43. And the second half, as I say, we've been Damascus, going back to Jerusalem with Paul. And Paul goes to Tarsus. 
And we have that lovely sort of passage, don't we, just before in verse um, 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit increased in numbers. That's like one of those statement sort of passages in Acts. So the church is growing um, and they're living in faith. But now we have this next um, encounter with Peter and believers in Joppa and Lydda. So we're in Judea. As I say, the natural flow would really seem from when Paul goes up to Tarsus to just flow through to chapter 10. But, you know, Luke, the writer of Acts, and, you know, the gospel, in placing these passages, uh, these verses, 30 to 43, here once again is focusing on the work of the risen and ascended Christ. You know, in these miraculous healings, we see that Christ is at work through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, these healings point to Christ and lead people to turn around and put their trust in the Lord Jesus. So, verse 33, Peter encounters Anias, who has been paralysed for eight years and confined to bed. Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat. Verses 36 to 42, we have the account of Peter raising Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, I think that's a Greek um, version of Tabitha, from the dead. She is brought back to life. Peter's words to the dead Tabitha, get up, and she does. Do these miraculous um, encounters seem familiar? Do these miracles seem familiar? Take a look back at um, Luke's first um, book, Luke's Gospel. Take a look at verse um, Luke. Chapter 5, verse 24. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. Flick over a few pages to Luke, chapter 8, verse 54. Let me, this is what it says. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And Jairus' daughter does just that. So go back to Acts chapter 9 in these verses we're looking at. Notice what happens in verse 35. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Verse 42, this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. So Jesus is still at work, isn't he? His apostles giving evidence that the gospel about Jesus is true and bring people to put their trust in Jesus. And Acts shows how the gospel message was accompanied and authenticated by signs and wonders, miracles. But they all point to Christ and his saving power to all who believe. I mean, miracles, say, you know, they confirm that Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. Um, Acts 
chapter 2, verse 22. You don't need to turn to it, but I'll read it out. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was, was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. Also, miracles show that Christ is stronger than Satan. And also, they confirm that the Bible is God's word. And that's, you know, the important thing when we look at Acts. Because I think when we read Acts, particularly, you know, the chapters we're going to go through now in chapter 10, um, there's two dangers. There's one anti supernaturalism, i.e. trying to explain things in human terms rather than seeing them as an act of a sovereign, mighty God who can do things um, we can't possibly explain or imagine. I think the other danger is we have what we call, which I've called super-supernaturalism. You know, somehow Acts and the Gospels are a, a blueprint for Christian life. Um, with miracles, the normal rather than the extraordinary that we see here in Acts and in Gospels. I mean, I'm old enough to remember John Wimber, Power Evangelism. I think I've got one of his books, Signs and Wonders. And the, and the idea was that, you know, if we had enough faith or were expectant enough, you know, we would see the miracles which we see in Acts um, should be something which we and the church should experience. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying um, that God doesn't work miracles now. You know, God is compassionate and kind, and he invites us, doesn't he? 1 Peter um, chapter 5, verse 7, you know, cast all our anxieties on him. And we can pray to him. So often our prayers, I mean, I know one pastor, maybe a bit cynically, said, you know, Prayer meetings seem more like doctors' waiting surgeries, but they all often are, and they're genuine and real concerns and needs about health, not exclusively about sickness, illness, and people's health. And when I preached on Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, that's when the lame man is healed outside the gate beautiful of the temple. I said this, you know, God is involved in the extraordinary and the ordinary. You know, if someone is healed in a way which can't be explained by um, medical science, well, we can thank God for that, can't we? And I'm sure, as I look around here, there's people can, you know, can say that um, they know or they have been healed in a way which, you know, medically a doctor is just completely flummoxed. You know, a cyst is just vanished, um, cancer has gone, a couple have been told they'll never be able to have a child, conceive a wife, conceive, it does exactly that. And we can thank God that he is doing and working. If someone's healed through normal, modern medical procedures, again, we thank God, don't we? We can praise him. And if someone is not healed, and we know that people pray for, you know, for people who are struggling with all sorts of things, and that healing doesn't take place, but God is still working. And perhaps, you know, when, you know, the hardest thing to do is trust God is when God is most glorified. And as we look through the Bible, particularly those pastoral letters, endurance, keeping going, carrying on the race is, you know, very much part of a Christian life, isn't it? 
Now, you know, we live some 2,000 years or so ago since Acts, and we have the full revelation of God, the Bible. You know, the Bible's God's word. There's nothing more to add to it. You know, and do we see the lame being healed or the dead rising as they do in Acts? Or do we see the winds and waves being stilled by just a word? And more to point, if we as a church don't experience what we see in Acts, should we somehow think our faith is lacking? I think John Stott, now John Stott, I'm sure many of you know, but he was one of the most influential evangelicals in this country, along with David Lloyd-Jones back probably 60, 70 years ago. And he wrote these words. And I think they're very helpful and very balanced. This is what he said. Those of us who believe, as I do, that the major function miracles no longer exist because we are no longer in a fresh epoch of revelation and redemption, and that therefore means we have no liberty to expect miracles to occur with a frequency with which they occurred in such epochs, should nevertheless be entirely open to them. We believe God, the Creator, is free, sovereign and powerful. We must not attempt to domesticate God or dictate to him what he is allowed to do. And when he talks about epochs, I think you, if you look at the Bible, you see... M- Miracles clustered around. So you've got Moses, you've got Elijah and Elisha, you've got the Gospels and Acts. Um, and so that's when he's talking about pox. And each time it's a self-revelation of God, um, which is um, what those miracles testify to. And it's interesting that if we look back at Acts chapter 9, in those verses we've been looking at, 32 to 43, in both cases, the believers there sent for Peter, didn't they? They knew he was around there. Peter, the apostle, one who also had um, witnessed and seen the risen Lord Jesus. There was a recognition of his role as an apostle and the power that had been granted through, to him through the risen Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's more than likely that believers in both um, Lydda and Joppa had prayed for Aeneas and for Tabitha, who'd been ill before her death. They must have prayed. Yet it was Peter who would be the agent for the necessary miracle to happen. But the important thing is... In both instances, people believed in the risen Lord as a witness of these two healings. And that is what is so important about these miracles. And is that not, if I can put it like that, the greater miracle? You, and again, think about it. Dorcas, Tabitha, Aeneas, Lazarus, which we haven't mentioned, Jairus' daughter. They have all died since they've been raised back to life. There's only one person who has come out the other side of death, who has defeated death in his life today, and that's Christ. I mean, I know someone might say, well, I've been, and I have myself, people say, oh, we've been on the mission field, been to wherever, and we've seen people raised to life. And, you know, why should I not accept that? But as I say, that's still the same point. Did that miracle, did it lead that person to believe in Christ? Did the people around who saw that miracle, did they believe in Christ as a result of that miracle? 
And, it, and I'm more than open to consider that on the mission field, where the Bible has not been preached, that um, there might be these power encounters, so a demonstration of the Lordship of Christ. But as I say, isn't that the greatest miracle of all? That we, anybody who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, is made right with God, and we have that promise of eternal life, and that hope of that new creation, that new heaven and earth, that heavenly earth, if you like, where there'll be no more sadness, no more sickness, no more sorrow, and all of those illnesses, sicknesses, disabilities, they will not feature in that new creation. And that's what, if we put our trust in Christ, is our hope. Our hope is, in fact, Jesus Christ, his resurrection, the fact we're made right with God through his death. In Ephesians um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, again, you don't need to look at it, we're told that we're spiritually dead, and yet, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're made alive, aren't we? We were a corpse opposed to God, and now we are made alive in Christ. And he works that amazing miracle. And anyone who believes that miracle has happened to them. I don't know if you saw the uh, Passion for Life um, study last Tuesday. It had Rico Tice talking about you know, God's work and our work in the role of evangelism. And he said how it, it frustrates him when people who come from a Christian home, and they say, oh, well, how will you convert me? Shraga? well, I came from a Christian home. And he said, no, it's still a miracle that God has worked in you, that the Holy Spirit has, you know, softened your heart and, you know, opened your eyes and to put your trust in Christ. You know, they've had that amazing privilege of being brought up in a Christian house. But you don't just shrug and say, oh, well, I'm a, I belong to a Christian home. God is still working that miracle, isn't he? And how do we come to putting our trust in Jesus? God's powerful word is preached in the Holy Spirit, applying it to our hearts and souls. Experiencing a miracle or seeing one before coming to faith in Christ is not necessary. It may happen, but God's word is. This is what the Apostle Paul said. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I can say that. I wonder if I really believe that. Because, you know, the resurrection is our hope. It's our final hope, isn't it? I'll leave you with these words. This is John Hopkins. He it was um, in the rule of Queen Mary. Do you remember Henry VIII had died? Queen Mary, he'd set up the Church of England, which by the time of Queen Mary was a Protestant church because of Archbishop Cranmer. Mary was a Catholic and she started persecuting those who had, uh, were Protestants. And this is, um, and he was being urged to renounce his Protestant faith. And his friends were saying, life is sweet. Death is bitter. And this is what um, John Hopkins replied. Eternal life is more sweet. Eternal death is more bitter. So let's pray. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit increased in numbers. Father, as we look at the book of Acts and this chapter, we're just astonished and amazed. But we should not be because you are all-powerful. You can turn your enemy into one who trusts you, as we've seen in Saul's conversion. We know you can work mighty acts of power. Yet the most amazing thing is that through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a hope, a hope of forever life, life eternal. And that comes through your word, your Holy Spirit opening our heart, softening our hard hearts and opening our blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears so that we can put our trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us as we continue living for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to delight in him and to be thankful until we pass into the next life or your Son comes again in all his power and glory. We pray this